Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Today is a special day for a myriad of different reasons. First of all, we have Mike Wilson joining us. Mike Wilson joins us quarterly, which means he comes on four times a year. I can do that math. And it's great timing to have Mike with us. I'm excited. Today also happens to be Danny Moses's 54th birthday. Why you got to give out my exact age? (laughs) 54. All right. You doxed me. So Danny was born this day in 1969. Oddly enough, Danny, as this was the day that what happened? Please educate our audience. The man landed on the moon. A man on the moon. Man on the moon. Now, in 1992, the great REM, Michael Stipe led REM. They if sang a believe. song. Yeah. Man, if you believe yeah. they put a man on the moon. Yeah. And what he's saying is, if you believe that bullshit, I got a bridge I'm going to sell you. So if you believe somehow that all this that's going on over the last year and a half, all the Fed rate hikes, everything that's going on in terms of currency, in terms of bond moves, By the way, in terms of deteriorating margins for a number of companies, if you somehow believe this is all going to come to a rosy end and everything's going to be fine, if you believe, Danny, that they put on a man on the moon, I got a bridge to sell you. (laughs) By the way, this is the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami, the aforementioned Danny Moses, birthday today, 54, 1969. Dan Nathan, and of course, Mike Wilson. How is everybody today? Danny, start us off. It's your birthday. I'm feeling good. I don't know. I woke up. I've started singing Here We Go Again, you know. White Snake. Yeah, it was one of my favorite 80s songs for sure, right? I'm in a good mood right now. Of course you are. Having seen Mike here, I feel like we're in, I feel comfortable right now. The same way on Fast Money the other night with Cameron Dawson. Earlier this week on CNBC's Fast Money, 5 p.m. Eastern time on your dial, uh, we had Danny Moses, yourself, me, Cameron Dawson, and Mel came to us, and this was the right question, by the way. You know, she asked us, listen, you guys do a podcast together, a very, what did she say? She's a very popular podcast. Sure. But she said, do you think, and this is a legit question, do you think you're guilty of being in that echo chamber? You all have very like ideas. Do you think that could be a possibility? And I answered the question, 
I'm curious as to your thoughts. Well, you heard my answer. And just listen, I'm a little fired up about this. And I thought it was a great question by Mel. And we're going to kick it over to Mike in a second here. But, you know, like one of the things, it's very different being an investor, being a market participant and being a market pundit. One of the things that I think we like to say all the time is we show up every day. We are doing this. Every day. We're trying to be as transparent as possible. We are not flapping in the wind. And the one issue that I have, and I've felt this way since the moment I stepped foot on a CNBC set in 2009, is that there's a whole heck of a lot of people who are incentivized to talk about the markets in a way that really just benefits, I think, whatever their worldview is, where they're coming from, who pays their their paycheck. And I'm just sick of all of these folks who've gotten so good at a talking out of both sides of their mouths, okay, no matter what wind is blowing in the market. And we're not going to do that. We're just not going to do that. So yeah, you said it four times a year. We've been really fortunate to have Mike come join us. All of us have a long history with Mike. I used to talk to Mike, I think on a daily basis in the late nineties, when you were a tech specialist at Morgan Stanley, you've had this amazing career doing a, a lot of really interesting jobs at Morgan Stanley. Danny, I know you used to speak to him for years. Guy, you got to know him through CNBC for the years. You show up every day. You don't flap in the wind. You don't talk out of both sides of your mouth. You are data-driven. You talk to some of the smartest people who are in the market. So welcome. I know that was a long intro before we no, got we to Mike Wilson it. here. <laughs> welcome. And talk to us a little bit about that. Because listen, you're a very polite man. We are less so when it comes to some of this stuff. We get a bit worked up about this because it's really easy on TV. People often remember just the last thing they said. They don't put together the thread of the work that you do and look at the body of work. Thanks for having me again. I, I do enjoy the long form podcast simply because you do get the full context, right? I find that you know, other media kind of experiences to be soundbite, not because they're bad outlets. Just mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. It's three to five minutes and you can only say so much and you don't get the full flavor of the rationale behind it. Now, look, I'm going to say this up front. Okay. I've been dead wrong this year. Okay. And we don't get everything right. But I think what you said is, is true. We try to at least present the data the way we see it and we're not always going to get it right. Markets sometimes trade away from our thesis, and sometimes our thesis is just wrong, okay? This is a time, though, where I feel like our thesis is actually correct, and we're pretty reflective about this because, I look, I have to deal with really smart investors every day. I can't sit there and just tell a story without backing it up. And so, like, our, our, our client interaction is still quite high because they like our framework, they like our, our work. And I, I guess we can get into it now, but, I mean, I think this year has been a classic case where the markets have just elevated to a a price level that I never would have predicted. Even if I got everything right this year, Mm -hmm. I probably never would have predicted that we would trade at 20 times forward earnings. So to be honest, I I was actually fine with everything this year up until about May. Basically, the markets were trading very narrowly. There were 10 stocks that were kind of working because of the AI theme. And I understand that that has captured people's imagination. But I'll talk about this in a minute, risk-reward versus making money. There are two different things there. And look, I'll be honest, I didn't really buy into the AI theme the way that other people have. And that's wrong. I mean, because it's worked. So making money is different than being right. And I would say that the last two months is when this thing has really taken on another level of sort of speculative flavor. And we see it now in the sentiment data, the positioning data. You see the same stuff that we see. And it's my job as a fiduciary to let people know that the risk reward, okay, at these levels, this is not a good time to be getting incrementally bullish, all right? So what I try to do is I don't worry about the last six months is I just admit I was wrong. And then what I'm trying to do is figure out what do we do from here? Mm-hmm. Just because you, you make a mistake, don't compound the mistake by making another one. So I think a lot of people did that last year, for example, they were bullish, 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 and then they got bearish at the bottom and then they sold everything. And that's how you make lows. Now I'm on the other side of that, right? So I was a hero last year. I'm a zero this year. I, I, I get that. 
And we traded last year really well, but this year we're not. But I don't think that our general thesis, which we're going to get into in a little bit, is incorrect. And I feel like the second half of this year, our fundamental thesis is going to get priced. First of all, there's no need to be apologetic. Dan, you start out by being like somewhat apologetic. You use what you believe are the facts and what you use to make your decisions. And you made an amazing move, which I hated, <laughs> in October of 22, when you saw the market sell off too much. And you said, this is a near-term buying opportunity. By the way, no one was making that call, okay? You were bearish when most people weren't, and then you were bullish when most people weren't, but because we're going to judge in two to three months. But I'm going to come back to that in a second. Guy. Yes, Danny. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to do Oh, we'll I like do. this. Okay. This is word association. Can I close my... That the people Ready? can tell. Yeah, go ahead. Provasic. I don't know. Are you D90? I don't know this Are either. you kidding me? The no, movie I, Fugitive. I, a fugitive. Walks yes. in. Yes. Remember, remember yes. he says... You change the samples. Yes. You change the samples so that you could have your RUD9, you. you could have your Provasic. Okay. Harrison Ford, by the way. On CNBC the other night, of course, you get you get to talk, but then you get cut off, and then you change. I didn't realize how that works. Like, it can be a 30-second segment or a three-minute, whatever. Yeah, I got to be really I clear on something, about, though, because we're going to yeah. get kicked off TV if we don't make this clear. We love CNBC. Oh, I, we love the well, format. Yeah. We do. And I think, Mike, you made a really good point. They're two different sort of formats Can I, here, can I finish I mean? the thing? Yeah. Please. Okay. Your so I wanted to talk about sell-side analyst, not strategist, analyst. So you have two choices, and Mike knows this, and you guys know this. You work at a firm, a sell-side firm. You're an analyst that covers a tech stock. You're going to come out and do an earnings preview. You have two choices. Raise your target because it's obviously exceeded or downgrade the stock. No one is going to downgrade a stock, just human nature-wise, in front of a quarter with momentum. It's not human nature. It takes a lot of guts to go out and do that at the time. I just want people to understand when they see sell-side target raised by raising target from 400 to 700. It's all bullshit because you either have to downgrade the stock. Or, so I just want people to understand that. And I know sell-side research by analysts, not strategists. Take that with a grain of salt. But I want to go back to something. I worked in the 90s with Henry Blodgett at Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. and then they became CIBC Oppenheimer. And he was the Amazon analyst. And I'm going to read his report. I'm going to read a note that he wrote in 1998 because the exact situation that I'm talking about, okay? November 1998, these internet stocks have a tendency to go on runs, and we are clearly on a run here, he said. Okay, this is validating Amazon's move. As an analyst, he says Amazon stock will reach $400. Investors that day took the stock up $50 to $290, okay? And then I'm going to end with this. He wrote a piece in CNET News, but he was still an analyst. Unlike with other famous bubbles, the internet bubble is riding on rock-solid fundamentals, perhaps stronger than in any market has seen before. Underlying the crazy price increases are the foundations of what could become the early 21st century leading growth companies, a group that, in my opinion, will include America Online, Yahoo, and Amazon.com. So while the October to January run-ups have been crazy, the urge to invest in the companies that have had the biggest pops is not. Just because the internet stock phenomenon looks like a bubble, it isn't given that the bubble will burst. Okay, so he was basically trying to value. Of course, he got a great job at Merrill Lynch after that, got millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I've probably gone on too long. But Mike, back to you for a second. So people that want to measure in two, three months, and this market has all been about immediate gratification. Oh, you got that wrong. You, literally the next day, it's, nope, you're wrong. So let's go right into it, right, with your current thesis. Sure. What has changed other than stock market valuations that would make you change your thesis on kind of where we're going? Yeah, so we're like, we have to justify price targets in the S&P. It's just like an analyst would in a stock. And when we do the work, we don't have the same earnings view that's required to justify what's happened with stocks. So 20 times multiple is high, okay? Particularly when interest rates are now at five and a mm -hmm. quarter percent, right? This is not two years ago when we were still at zero. So you have to take that into account. So what I would strongly suggest is that the market is now anticipating some big acceleration in growth starting in the fourth quarter that carries into next year. 
our view and has been consistent is that we think we're in an earnings recession. We predicted an earnings recession a year ago. We're in it now. And our view is that it's going to get worse before it bottoms out. That's the main difference between our view and I would say 95% of the other strategists and probably 90% of our clients now. Most of our clients are in the camp that our earnings forecast is too bearish. All right, so we we look at a lot of data. We're data-driven, as you said earlier. We have a, a fundamental model that has done a great job of predicting earnings 12 months in advance. Then we try to follow the data to see what's going on. I think the differential, I think the thing that's going to surprise people in the next two quarters is that inflation is now coming down. Mm-hmm. That's a positive for multiples. People have gotten excited about that. Now, that was the reason we got bullish, by the way, in October, was we said inflation's peaking. And, oh, by the way, the dollar's going to top and rates are going to top, and that's going to drive multiples to go up. And they did. They went from 15 to 18 times. You said, good, we're out. That's plenty. We've continued to go higher, and it's been very narrow in these certain stocks, which means you've made even more money in those areas. You're willing to pay 30, 40, 50 times earnings, okay? So back to the current storyline now, if you look at the current forecast, they're expecting basically sales growth to reaccelerate in the second half of this year, margins to come back. But there's a very important feature about inflation that people don't appreciate. When prices come down, it hits your revenue line. Mm -hmm. So here's where I think we have credibility on this issue. So in 2020, when we were out of consensus, bullish on earnings, we made a call in April of 2020. We said, look, we're going to have massive inflation because they've overstimulated. People are like, we're in a pandemic. What are you talking about? And it's going to be really bullish for earnings because it's going to go right to the bottom line because companies have laid everybody off and it's just going to accrue to the bottom line. It's operating leverage. Now we're in a situation where companies are going to see pricing really fall apart. And we're starting to see evidence of that now. Export pricing, import pricing, PPI, finished goods. A couple of companies here just today reported talking about how price is leaving the station. If you miss revenues by 5% because of price, that's 20% hit to earnings. That's how you can get to our earnings forecast. And I think that's our differentiated view. I feel highly convicted on it, just like I did in 2020 on the other side. Um, could we be wrong? Of course. But that's our job to just make sure we're not missing something. And I think this is the key issue for the second half of this year. So people will say, and I'm, I don't sit in these seats, you do, but I've read enough about it. Multiples and earnings don't trough at the same time. Well, with that said, it doesn't mean the multiple can't come down to a certain point, maybe not trough and have that commensurate move with earnings. Both things at this point, I think, are, comp- well, I don't want to say completely out of line, but clearly elevated to points that don't make sense against this backdrop. So what goes down first, yeah. I guess, is the question. I don't even know if it matters, but I'm just curious. Well, let me let me articulate it a little bit differently than the way you said it, which is multiples tend to go up when earnings are troughing, mm-hmm. meaning when earnings get slashed. Like the old adage, never buy a cyclical stock when it's cheap, right? You buy a cyclical stock when it's expensive. Why? Because earnings have been smashed. So you're buying a high multiple and you know that the earnings are going to recover. Mm-hmm. The problem with today is that the earnings have come down for 2023, but they haven't really come down enough to basically create that big acceleration next year. So in other words, you're paying a high multiple on what are not trough earnings yet. So the way it typically works, going back to your question, multiples always bottom before the earnings. And I think the mistake people are making right now, potentially, if I'm right, is that they assume that multiples troughed in October of last year, anticipating the trough in earnings sometime this year. Now, I would agree with that if I thought earnings were troughing right now, but I don't think they are. So that's going to be where the rubber hits the road. And I think what's going to happen this fall is the multiple is going to come in hard again in anticipation of the earnings cuts that I project. Can we just go back over your S&P earnings projection for 23 is under $200, right? Correct. Okay. 
and 24 is? 230. So right. it's a big Cons- rebound. Consensus is 215 right now and 23 roughly and 240 uh, and 20. Closer to 225 for this year. Still that high. Okay. 220, 225. And then for, I'm sorry, 220 for this year and then 245 for next year. So if I think about that, we're in the middle, we're starting second quarter earnings. We're only 5% through or 10% through. Right. Are you expecting the back half to be much worse than projections? Because I don't know where you are quarterly. I'm yeah. Just, basically, we're expecting the second half of this year to be really bad. So the moment the sales growth, right? So the moment that you're the inflection point will right. be third, four, third quarter. So. All right. So I'm just trying to gauge because yeah. October tends to be a bad time potentially for the market. <laughs> yeah, but, but, so, now yeah. to be clear, but to be clear, so this year people say, oh, well, earnings have been really, been way, really good. I'm like, no, they haven't. Yeah, earnings they haven't. have been lousy. They just keep getting marked down and then they jump over the lowered bar and that's the game they play. Now, it's interesting. The market will give a pass on that until usually sales growth goes negative. Once sales growth goes negative, all of a sudden, that's when the market multiple says, holy smokes, these numbers are way too high. And you get the pricing in the market. And then eventually you figure out why, because the earnings come down later. One thing that I think has become very evident in the last couple of weeks is the, the move in the dollar lower. Okay. That was your call last year. And when you think about the Dixie, the US dollar index, how much it's off of the high as a year ago, and the way it just fell out of bed, I think a week and a half ago, is that the sort of thing though? that even if you do have, let's say, the sort of sales decline that you were expecting for S&P companies, that maybe some of these input costs coming in also, and then the dollar coming in helps buoy earnings, and we never see 2023 earnings south of, let's say, $200. Absolutely, and that's exactly what happened in Q1. So Q1, the dollar was even weaker than we expected, and so not only did it help multiples, but it allowed particularly these big tech companies to say, hey, this is the bottom, and it's gonna get better. So we saw pretty good revenue growth on a year-over-year basis for some of the big tech companies. A lot of that was weaker currency. So our call, and we do think the dollar is going to strengthen. If it doesn't, our call is going to be a little more challenging. I just want to let people know that Dan has porn up on his screen. When I say porn, it's the intraday chart of Tesla. Ah. It's up on the screen right now. I just look to my left and I... Really exciting. Happy birthday, I guess. Yeah, but anyway, birthday. yeah. So I don't know if you want to get into that at some point. I'm sure we'll talk about it during the show. But that's a perfect example, Mike, of people just buying because stocks are going up and the realization of a company reported earnings. And then I think of it as every day is an underwriting opportunity. Every yeah. day is a new one for stocks, for the market. And if things change or you believe anything's changed, you will change course, right? And so what you're talking about and what you're doing is you are looking daily and taking in this incoming information. And if something changes, you will change away. But you cannot let Price movements change the way that you behave. I'm going to Saratoga this weekend, by the way. So for Jay Sloan out there, I know you're one of our biggest fans. No, but I use this analogy all the time. The worst thing you can do, I'm sure my kids will do it when we get to the track, is to look at the odds board first. If you look at a horse and he's even money, the one that's eight to one, who's going to spend the time handicapping the eight to one horse? Let's just go. Let's just bet the one. I just want to win. So I'm fired up today. No, but that's true. true. You should never let. You're 100 percent right. Right. So you should handicap, and then you want to look up. But it's human nature. Who's chalk, even whether or not you realize it or not, you're going to do it. I want to ask Mike a question because I think this is important. I've gotten many things wrong. One of the things that I completely misunderstood or, I don't know, just didn't understand fully is this lag effect that's going on, not only in the market, I think, but the economy. Again, things seemingly are going okay, but is it just now, I've said this word all the time on the show. There's an inevitability to all of this, almost by definition, when you hike to the extent that we have over the course of time that we have, something's going to break. And and not necessarily has to be another bank going under, but the economy is going to slow. It's going to ratchet down for sure 
I'm just surprised it hasn't happened yet. Are you as surprised? It is happening. Okay, so here it, it is happening. Okay. So that's interesting. Yeah. It's starting to happen, but the but now the next question is, but the market clearly does not want to look at that right now. Look, I think this is what happened in the first half of the year. By the way, at the beginning of the year, our call was pretty consensus. You know, one of the things that was bothersome to me in early January, we wrote a note about at the time, I was like, how can we be right if everybody has agreed? Mm -hmm. And that I probably should at that point just upgrade. You scared everything. me. I thought you were getting, I thought that was a bullish note. I didn't like that one, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And of course, January was a rip-roaring month. And I said, okay, well, I just chalked it up to the January effect. And then if you actually look at the market, the average stock peaked on February 2nd. Mm -hmm. And that's still, that, that high is still that. held. Okay. So that is the orthodox highs, I like to call it so far. Now that could be broken. If we see the thing broaden out and all of a sudden we have another leg, well, then we're probably wrong. But right now, I'm trading against that February high for like S&P equal weight or small caps or like the average stock, okay? Now, if you think about things getting repriced at the beginning of the year, our view is that the, the economy was going to slow and so was everybody else's. We got a really strong warm weather January, okay? That allowed some of the numbers in the economy to be better. One thing that I underestimated was how much fiscal stimulus was also right. in the system. We've written about this recently, our rates team really put me onto this. But over the last 12 months, imagine this, last 12 months, the fiscal deficit has gone up by a trillion dollars. Okay, that's 4% of GDP, a trillion dollars at a time when the Federal Reserve is supposed to be trying to fight inflation. Now we can talk about the political nature of why they did it then, but that's a real boost to the economy that I think has made things mm -hmm. sound or feel a little bit better. If you look at, at gross uh, domestic income, GDI versus GDP product, okay, so it's basically income versus spending, GDI is already negative. There are already many parts of the economy that are in recession, okay? So the idea that there's this, somebody put the idea, oh, it's a rolling recession and we're never going to have everything go down at once. Everything's a rolling recession until there's actually a recession. Now, our house call is that we think we could avoid a recession, but we're not looking for rip-roaring growth, right? 1% growth in the second half, 1% growth next year. I think it could be worse. We'll see. We're already feeling the effects, but because of the fiscal spending, maybe there was some warm seasonality there in the beginning of the year. Things have held up a little bit better, and now we're just going to have the second half of the year where these things roll off, and I think that's when the risk is greater. You just nailed it because you don't need a recession to have a stock market move lower. That's the thing. That's the thing that drives me nuts. I need the NBER to define a recession for me to tell me that's my – to your point, it's, it's just an expensive market, which is tough to short on just expensive market. But I think what you just said makes a lot of sense. These are things and big trends that are happening. There's really no way – you can have blips here where – Things get better for a little bit of time where companies have better earnings than you think because they do a great job managing. But your point about deflation, I know you talked about disinflation versus deflation. Those exactly. are two very different things, right? Markets rally on disinflation, which is what you did in the fall. But yep. deflation, no one knows what to do with that because we haven't had inflation in 15 years. That's right. So now we're going to, un, not unchartered, but maybe for veterans like us that have seen it before. And I just want to say that, and I said this damn before we came in. People give us shit for trying not to be either more bullish. We try to be constructive. I'm done. I've had it. And when <laughs> I say that I've had it, I'm not going to pretend to be something. I cannot put on this big thing. I own stocks. I own, do I own the sports gambling company? Sure do. Do I, I own gold, but that's being short the S&P, but that's fine. But I want to own. I hate waking up and not wanting to puts. be bullish. I own puts. I'm long <laughs> puts. Things. But my point, Mike, and you, you don't have to agree. I'm not asking you to agree or disagree. I'm saying to myself, I'm not going to change the methods of how you follow things just to give in or feel because my ego's getting hit or because everyone this, that, and the other. Anyway. At some point, you do have to say something's wrong and we've missed too much, but we try to do it every day. And I think we're at a very important point because so many things are lined up now, right? Yeah, the positioning sentiment, the valuation is, I think, out of bounds. 
And now you have all these things that are going to work against you from a growth standpoint. You not only have the fiscal going the wrong way, you have basically the consumer savings are now running through their boost. You have a liquidity change, which was the other big benefit in the first half that we didn't really predict, which is that the TGA got drained, the Treasury General account got drained to zero. So that means there's no Treasury issuance. So there's crowding in. Now we got crowding out from that standpoint. You had $500 billion injected into the banking system, in March. which is not QE in the traditional sense, but it is a form of liquidity. And those are just things that I think allowed the market to elevate. And then people take the price action as a defining feature. Oh, that must be what the market must be telling me something that I'm missing. You said something earlier, which is one of my pet peeves, which is people will say, they'll say, okay, how do you think the quarter was? And they over here, they're like looking at the stock price. Right. And then they go, Oh, it was good. Exactly. Well, we had that last 10 minutes, night. 10 minutes ago, you said it was bad, but the stock now is up. Right, so the narrative. Right. Yeah, so that's annoying. On Fast Money last night, Phil LeBeau, and, and I love him, he's a great reporter, but he's reading the Tesla press release. He's like, that was a great quarter. <laughs> like, and I'm looking at it, everything I'm looking at, it was like, was not a great quarter. And the fact that the stock was unchanged after running 100% since it reported its last quarter, it looked like a great quarter. Here we are, back to my, my fact set Pornhub here thing. Um, you know, yeah. it's down 10%. It hasn't had an uptick all day long. And it's probably going a bit lower from here. I want to ask Mike a question about this. So I know the bond market comes into play and we, we can talk about it. We talk about it all the time. The curve went from flat, 111 basis points inverted, down to about 38, back to 104, down to about 83 or so. And as we're sitting here, it's either side of 100 basis points, maybe even worse. What are we rooting for here? No, I, I'm, I'm asking a serious question. I don't even know at this point, because if it continues to invert, that ain't good. And then there'll be other people that say it's the re-steepening of the yield curve that you got to watch out for. But right now, the bond market doesn't know what it wants to do. We're at stall speed. Okay. So when you're at stall speed, both for earnings aren't growing and the economy's not really growing. And when you're at stall speed, there's a lot of uncertainty, okay? That's why we got this crazy stuff going on right now where people, they are looking at price to tell them what to do because there aren't a lot of strong signals one way or the other. At some point, it's going to break. We're going to have a mm -hmm. recovery or we're going to probably have a recession. But until proven guilty on either one of those, the market can go back and forth. So on the yield curve, I absolutely agree that it's when it re-steepens that that's when you got to really worry because that's the bond market saying, the Fed, you guys are going to be cutting aggressively over the next two years. So the bond market starts to predict that growth is going to really come in hard. It hasn't done that yet. So in many ways, the bond market actually, other than March, right, when we had the bank go out, that was when the curve kind of re-steepened because the bond market did start pricing in potential recession. We averted that in the second quarter, obviously, and now gotten more negative. Who's to say that it can't re-steepen in the fall if growth really falls off? And that's what I suspect. I think the curve will re-steepen in the fall. The thing you said before, we've mentioned it multiple times weekly on the podcast, which is that the two big events that happened during the first half of the year that no one saw coming, people saw the problems in the banks because their balance sheets were messed up, right? These were guaranteed securities. Effectively, your point five hundred billion came in, I don't care what form it was in, BTFD, BTF, whatever this thing is, came in. And what happened was they guaranteed all deposits. And that's effectively, in my mind, that's what happened. So now any bank, so that's a huge positive from a liquidity perspective from fear. The second is your point about deficit. The debt ceiling is now unlimited. We thought maybe get pushed in September, maybe they'll raise it a trillion. It's unlimited. So now the thought would be, if you want to put a bullish hat on and throw fundamentals to the wind, right? Throw And just say, I'm throwing those out. I don't care. The moral hazard is here. The, the Fed has my back. The Treasury has my back. And if something breaks, they're going to fix it. So I'll worry about that later. Who's writing a report in January that says, I'm bullish because four banks are going to fail. The Fed and Treasury are going to guarantee all deposits. The debt ceiling is not going to be, not just be resolved. They're going to lift it to infinity 
for a period of 20 months. So therefore, I want to know who had that call, right? On the But my point is that it's just liquidity. At the end of the day, you have X amount of dollars chasing X amount of things, and that's it. The Fed's balance sheet now is below the level it was, I think. Barely. Barely. But okay, let's call it flat to Silicon Valley Bank. So there is actually liquidity being drained. And you mentioned something, and again, you know this better than I do, but Treasury has to raise about $1.4 trillion or so by the end of the year, probably by mid-November or so. And the Fed's not going to monetize. So where's that going to be drawn? Like, where's that going to... I don't think people are focused on that enough either, and just in terms of the liquidity silo. Look, we've been talking about this liquidity issue for the last month, and we have a metric that tries to measure this versus the market, and it hasn't really worked yet. But I think that is going to be a factor in the second half of the year too. It's $1.4 They've done about half of that. It's got to be funded somewhere. That's a crowding out. Mm -hmm. That money could go somewhere else. And then the QT is about $90 billion a month. That will be basically bank reserves. So we did a $500 billion injection. It's not going up anymore. So they did stabilize the situation, but it's about the rate of change now, right? So the rate of change on reserves is probably negative, and that should be a drag on multiples without an earnings problem. And I would note a lot of the funding going on at Treasury is short-term bills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're buying themselves time. Which is important, being funded by the reverse repo. Correct. One dollar for dollar. Correct. So So what is, so hold on, yes. Explain that, Mike. Explain that, because that's important, because in my opinion, and I'm not suggesting I'm right, they're just buying time right now. They're just hoping this thing resolves itself by doing short data. That works until it doesn't. September 17th-ish. 2019, for example, when the overnight markets blew up, nobody was able to explain it then. Are we setting up for that type of situation? Well, I think you got a couple of things to think about now. They're funding the government with bills, and they can do that. They can monetize it, not with the Fed, obviously, but with the reverse repo, which is set up as a facility for these types of things, generally. It's a $2.2 trillion facility that's been drained down to about $1.6, $1.7 trillion. So they've, it's dollar for dollar. They have another $700 billion, though, they need to issue by year end to fund the government and to get the TGA back up to where they need it to be. Some of that funding is going to come at the back end. Like, why are you funding at 5.5% when you can fund the back end at 380? So some there will be bond issuance. Now, there's an event next week, which is the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan has been the anchor in the global bond market for the last 30 years. Now, I'd say it's 50-50 on whether they decide to raise the yield curve control, but the Bank of Japan has been putting in monster amounts of money mm-hmm. to defend their yield curve. Once they lift that yield curve next week, which we think there's a decent chance that can happen, that all of a sudden that's another influx of money that goes away. They don't need to be buying their bond market. It also may de-anchor the global bond market. Forget about the bills market. And if the 10-year treasury actually goes up on the back of more supply and there's not another buyer out there in the global bond market, the central bank you know, not doing it anymore, you could see back-end rates actually go up into a slowdown. That would be a very challenging environment. I don't know if you listened to the On The Tape podcast last week, but this maniac Danny Moses, every, he was just like blurting out in a sing-songy way. Go ahead, do it for me I don't even remember. Control. Oh, control. I mean, yeah, I'm Dana like, Jackson, what are you talking about? I'm like, you looking at him like, I'm like, no one's paying attention. And you're going to wake up one day. Currencies are going to be all over the place. The, the majority of financial crises, crises, crises. Yeah. Like originate like in Moses, a currency. 100%. From, from a Moses, that's like this, yeah. right, crisis. Yeah. Yes. So here's one. I want to get back to valuation on, on the S&P for a second, because we just said we're all agreeing that right now consensus current year is like 220, next year maybe 245. Let's just say that I expected a 10% increase. Let's say we come in at 220 and we have a 10% increase. Right now, 
the S&P is trading at about 18 and a half times, okay, this 220 number and, and about 20 times-ish or something, that that other number. On average, this is per fact set, okay? I, I think the S&P has traded about 18 and a half times over the last five years and about 17 and a half over the last 10 years. But let's think about where rates were during those averages. This is one of the things that seems to be a really big disconnect. Yeah. Now, all that said, okay, think back to when the S&P was 3,600 in February of 2020, okay? And it dropped 35%. And then it, all that stimulus, monetary, fiscal, zero rates. And then we had the S&P get back. And a lot of us, you made your call and it was a great call, okay? In April, May of, of 2020, I thought we'd probably stall out there for a bit or whatever. But then we were just off to the races, right? Because there's more fiscal and everything like that. And then we just kept on going and we went all the way to 4,800, okay? From 2,400, think about that. And so what I'm worried about right now is that maybe I'm in your camp too. I'm poo-pooing the AI thing because I really do think it's clustered around 10 stocks, which is obvious, that have gained $2 trillion in market cap. They're also a huge participant or contributor to S&P earnings. And I don't think that's going to materialize in the earnings in this year or next year. So my question to you is though, can this hopium continue? We're seeing a little bit broader participation. The banks just joined the party. We're seeing some other stuff going on. Is there a chance that we get back to 4,800 and then we just keep going? Because that's what happened in the back half of 2020 and 2021. And you were on the right side of it. I think if you don't get a material slowdown in earnings, there's earnings disappointment. There's a chance we probably get a new highs and, and, maybe, and we'll just keep going. That means there's no recession that we averted the, the issue. The fiscal uh, dominant policy takes over into an election year. That's the bull case. And by the way, I'm not adverse to it. One of the reasons we're bullish on 24 earnings is because of that. We just thought there would be this drawdown in between. There's a shot clock on this yeah. call. And I said this, by the way, in January, and then I revised it because I didn't see all this other stuff. I said, we pushed out the shot clock yeah. and people say, oh, we're well, revising. I did, but I won't revise it again. If we don't get it in September, October, it ain't happening. All right, so the flip side of that, let's just say we get a, a fairly quick 10% pullback. Let's say we get back to 4,000 yeah. or something like that. At that point, I, I'm assuming you take a more nuanced look at the macro That's or right. at your broader so let's view. talk about that. I think it's yeah. really important because you brought up a couple things a minute ago, which is the market is very expensive. But if you take out those 10 stocks, it's probably 16, 16 and a half, which isn't crazy. So in other words, if you're going to be bullish, okay, and everybody has their on the macro, like, and, and there's plenty of people who are more constructive on the macro than I am, great. You need to buy the other stuff. Like You should be buying banks. You should be buying energy. You should be buying material stocks. These are cheap. You shouldn't be adding more to the Magnificent Seven, even though they're great companies. They're just, they're priced for it now. I think AI, by the way, is not going to do much for this year, maybe other than a few stocks, okay? It's not going to do much, but it is going to do something to 24, 25. And I think that's why people are getting excited. They're saying, I'm willing to pay a higher multiple today because there's going to be this huge productivity boom and everything else. And that may very well be true. But if there's going to be the kind of dip in earnings that I expect, the market will not look through that. Mm -hmm. So that's why, I, as I said, okay. there has to be a shot clock. If I don't see the earnings damage in the third quarter, I'm wrong. So we're going to be very disciplined around that. But in the meantime, if you want to bet against me right now, and there's plenty of people who, who do, and they've made money this year doing that, you should be broadening out your portfolio. That's what you need to be doing. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros.
iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. Inflation. We talked about it on this show. When the print came at 9.1%, I think it was June of last year, I think to a person we said, that's going to be the peak number for a while, if not for the many years. And we thought it would come down. It's come down. About the same as I thought, maybe a little faster, respectfully. But with that said, there's a school of thought, and I'm one of these people, that think there's going to be a reacceleration into the months you just talked about, September, October, November, for a myriad of different reasons. Not least of which, by the way, there's been this sort of uptick in a lot of these important commodities. Gasoline, for example, is making a new 52-week high as we're sitting here. How does that factor in? I think one of the reasons the Fed is as hawkish as they've been is because they see that exactly taking place. I think the, the inflationary thing, we've had a view for a while, it's a boom, bust, boom, it's a 40s, like the vol- that. Inflation is going to be really volatile. Mm-hmm. And I would not be surprised if inflation goes negative for a very brief period of time. Now, there are the machinations of the comparisons, which I think you might have been referring to, where we could see inflation stay stickier in the headline numbers. What I'm focused on as an equity investor, though, is I don't really care that much about CPI or PCE. What I care about is what are companies that I'm invested in, what kind of price are they receiving? And that's where we're seeing much greater degradation on price than even what the government statistics are saying. Now, here's an interesting sort of comparison to 2020, 2021. So in 2020, 2021, CPI got to nine, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. Companies, though, were taking 15, 20% price. That was all the over-earning. So how could it not be that as inflation comes down, like the, the companies now are going to get less price because they have too much inventory, they've overhired, they're scrambling on margins, and they're trying to move product. And that's what we see already in the good segment where there's de- outright deflation today. Services is starting to show some weakness as well. And I suspect we could have both. In other words, you could see this is, and this is going to be potentially really bad for multiples, which is that the headline statistics stay higher than what the Fed can tolerate. Yet at the company level, they're seeing deflation. They're feeling it. They're feeling something way worse. So it's the opposite of what we saw, say, in 2021, mm-hmm. where companies were getting this monster price and the Fed's like sitting on zero going, we don't see it yet in the data. We don't see it yet. That's transitory, whatever. And the companies are like, okay. And they're just piled in the cash flow. So now it's going to be the opposite where the companies are like, guys, we're hemorrhaging cash right now. And the Fed's like, yeah, but CPI is still 3.5. Right. We're not cutting yet. That will be a heart attack, potentially. That's another scenario that is worth thinking about. Everything's been backwards, it feels like, in this, like the logic. Oh, an inverted yield curve tells you that the recession's coming. No, it's different this time. No, it's different the same. It's never really different this time. You can explain, and I always look to fixed income to tell me what's going to happen in equity and thoughts on that. But to the point you just made about if inflation is sticky and guys talking about it and people are begging, 
My thing is that people believe you buy stocks when the Fed starts cutting. If that's true, to your point on the logic, then why are you buying stocks when the yield curve is inverted? I mean, to your point, it doesn't make sense the opposite side because if you tell a bull that, guess what? They're going to cut 100 basis points before the end of this year. Let's just say that happens. You can slow down. Where did the equity market go? There's yeah. no chance that and maybe give you a chance to upgrade your, your view on the markets and us as well in that time period. Because that would mean to me, the S&P is well below 4,000. I mean, it's if you're begging for 100 bips. Or the dirty little secret is that usually when the Fed's cutting rates, the equity market is tanking. Right now, the market, they price in 25, 25. Let me assure you, if the Fed's cutting rates, it's like hundreds. They were doing 75 on the way up. They're doing hundreds on the way down. The only thing that's changed, we came into the year, July was going to be the rate cut. July was the rate cut. We're getting the last hike potentially in July. Yep. And now the first rate cut, guess what? Yep. Six months later, everything it feels like has been just suspended or pushed off for six months. That being said, I wish I'd owned the Magnificent Seven. It always works as you get this late cycle pivot trade, okay? And that was our call in October. We, we were like, we, hey, screw, I, I screwed this yeah. up in 19. Yeah. I'm not going to screw it up again. Of course, you made the call. I'm like, oh, what a, what a hero I am. But not realizing there was a whole other leg to it potentially. Now, I think some of that got ginned up by the, the banking crisis, ironically, and then the AI thing. So we got a little further than I expected. But the point is that when the Fed's done, okay, then you need to worry about growth. So like we priced the whole pivot. So I always like to say this to people, like, the Fed's going to stop cutting rates. I'm like, we just price that. You don't get to price it again. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and by the way, if they're pivoting and cutting, that's a lot different than them pivoting and holding. Like, I think pivoting and holding is not that bad if growth holds up. If the Fed pivots and holds and growth rolls over and they continue to hold, that's where I think you could have an issue. So it's a, it is different this time in one way. And I just, I think this is worth talking about. We went back and looked at the, like the last 10 recessions or going back to the 40s. And in non-inflationary expansions, like we've all of our careers we've lived in, the Fed has always been proactively cutting rates long before unemployment started going up, long before the recession. Why? Because there was no inflation in the system. They could be proactive. If you go back and look at the 80s, 80, 82, and then 74, and even 69 when you had inflation, they didn't cut rates until you were in the recession because they couldn't. The reaction function is different when you're in inflationary expansion. The reaction function is we need unemployment to be up high before we can really start cutting rates. And that's the difference this time. So when they're cutting rates, unemployment is probably going up. So next week, the Fed's meeting, we had that hawkish pause in June and the CME Fed funds tracker is predicting, you know, a near certainty they're going to raise 25 basis points. It seems goofy in a, in a way, but I wonder, and, and I'm just curious, like what are your economists over there at, at Morgan Stanley? It seems like you can poo Jackson Hole as like this pivotal sort of like period. This is a month from now, the, the St. Louis Fed. Comfab, something's going to happen there, right? There's going to be something articulated about the Fed's. That's the Kansas City Fed that does Kansas, that. Sorry, sorry. sorry. St. Louis just resigned for whatever reason yeah. to go to Purdue. But right. yes, keep going. Sorry. So that's why Mike gave me a little. More. Exactly. Right. So he went to St. Louis last year for a day. I went I've to a to Pearl St. Jam Louis. concert by myself on a Sunday. That There's town, a lot to read into all of things. That you just town. Said. Yeah. There is nothing going. I couldn't believe it. I went to downtown. What the hate mail we're going to get? Uh, I know. It's fine. And listen, you know. I have, mean, a, have added people. Have added people. I will tell you, St. Anyway, Louis, I took you off your thing. No, I know, yeah. but I, I mean, I went there. I met some nice people. I was down on the floor, GA pit guy, as I like to do it. And I was just, you know, saying the, the people, whatever. It was nice, but I turned around what and got the hell out of there. The next what morning. is it? I don't General know. mission pit Come on. thing, take right. pictures. So videos. the KC yeah. Fed, yeah. I've never I, heard of yeah. Hall. Yeah. In a month from now, Mike, sorry about that. Uh, and just, by the way. Like three hours from St. Louis. So yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> What's going to happen there? What do you think is going to happen? Is there going to be some s sort of like shift? Because obviously. I think way, yeah. I think it's way too early to start talking about Jackson Hole. Like one, once again, I'm very, I'm much more focused on the Bank of Japan. Mm -hmm. Because the Bank of Japan, Japan started the whole 
disinflationary, deflationary wave in 30-something years ago. 40. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you actually 33. If you think about the Bank of Japan being the anchor again, I think that's way... Like, the Fed's already out of them. They've already mm-hmm. been raising rates in a crazy way. They've already said they're going to be higher for longer. So I don't think that's going to be... I don't know. I don't know what that. I don't know what they would do there. That would be traumatic mm-hmm. to markets. I think the Bank of Japan is a much bigger wild card from a central bank policy standpoint. Can we talk about this? So it's it's Thursday into the close here, and we have a couple like like we're having a proper technology sell off. Taiwan Semiconductor, what they had to say, stocks down five percent. Tesla's down nine and a half percent. Netflix after its earnings down nine and a half percent. Now, granted, all these stocks have rallied into it. What are you expecting as we get into, and really it is about Microsoft, Amazon, Google. It really, NVIDIA is going to be the main event when we get that in August. You know what I mean? That's going to be the, the big one. Some of these stocks have gained hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap. Tesla gained 400 billion. Yeah. NVIDIA gained 400 billion. This is since their last earnings reports. It, it seems like you could say that there's always been this concentration of five to 10 stocks that have you know done a lot of the heavy lifting, but it's never been to this extent. To me, I just think it, it yeah. seems like it's a bit dangerous right here. We talked about this in our, our own pod earlier in the week, and I think the difference between this earnings season and the last two or three, by the way, it's the same pattern we've seen, which is they cut the numbers, they jump over the bar, mm-hmm. and then they lower. Now, maybe not for those four or five stocks, but the general view. In other words, better than feared is not going to get it done this time because stocks have rallied into the earnings. Whereas the last three or four quarters, stocks sold off in earnings. The expectations were quite low. What we've noticed so far, forget about these bigger companies you mentioned, so far it's been about 80 companies have reported. The average price performance on the day after is down 1% to 2%. And same thing on day two. That's a very different pattern, meaning it's a sell the news. I think this earnings season is a sell the news event. If it's bad news, you get really punished. If it's Okay news, you're probably only down a little bit, but it's going to be really hard for a stock to rally in this quarter unless you substantially beat and raise in the third quarter. Yeah, because every day is a new underwriting opportunity. And when you get this information coming in, at some point, everyone's on the boat. Everybody's on. Who are the incremental buyers from here? I think that the one thing we have not talked about, and I know you've written about, is Hands getting forced by fund managers, and I talk about this a lot, that were forced in the January run, and then February 2nd came, and they're like, shit, shouldn't have done that. Then March came, the banking crisis, shit. And then they came into the year, overweight energy, financials, underweight tech. We know this behavioral finance aspect of it. We're now approaching, which the reason that you tend to get sell-offs, sharp sell-offs in the fall, is because when the end of year starts rolling around, whether you're a hedge fund that's up double digits, whatever, you're like, you know what? I'm going, you can't go to cash, but I'm going to value. Or you're now performing at a fidelity, and you're beating your index, you change quickly. So the point that Dan's making, the point you guys are talking about is the excuses are there to sell these stocks off because everybody's on the boat. So if you're really being honest and underwriting these things, there is no valuation that I don't care what AI is going to do in the next two years. There's a level here where it just becomes absurd with the amount of market cap that's been gained for some individual companies. And Guy was talking about this before, Taiwan Semi. I know you what they said on the call about the exact quote. They were telling people, listen, what was it, Guy? It was something. Well, they were effectively saying, listen, we think, and again, we'll put it in the notes, AI is important, something you said, but we just, we're just not seeing the demand to sort of justify some of the moves. And again, paraphrasing, but I say this, I believe it, and we can debate it. I think Taiwan Semi is one of the five most important companies in the world, given where they sit. So when they make a comment like that, you can't just willfully ignore it. And I'm not asking you to play stock market, but 
when you hear things like that, it speaks to a lot of things that we've been well, talking what about saying for is a while. It's not overriding the weakness away from these advanced right. graphics chips, right? Which yeah. was what, which was the story That's for right. semis headed into this year. What I would say is it's the same title for our mid-year outlook: cyclical bear in a secular bull. Okay. Now I'm talking about the broader market in that regard. Okay, I think we're still in a secular bull market, but we're having a big cyclical bear market. It's the same thing with AI. Okay, it's a secular story. And it's really mm -hmm. exciting, but the cyclical aspects that are dragging down the semiconductor industry are overwhelmed. Like they can't overpower that in the near term. And I think that's a wake up call in the third quarter for, for the semiconductor industry stocks. Okay, X, maybe a couple of companies who can't deliver on the goods. Yeah, are you worried about China? So they're literally getting deflationary readings. I mean, it kind of fits into oh, some of the narrative. Like, and we haven't even talked about that yet, but it doesn't seem that our markets are particularly worried about it. Think about back to 2018 when the Fed was raising rates. It was a growth scare, a global growth scare that really turned the stock market lower in a very quick manner and go back to 15 and 16 right before that. It, this was China's slowdown was causing lots of palpitations in almost every risk asset on the planet, and we don't seem to be worried at all. We're, I'm staring at a VIX at 14 right here. What's amazing to me is that the dollar has been even weaker than we expected, and commodity prices are on their backs, and China still isn't really growing. So if I look at import prices, okay, they're now down 7% year over year. Now, some people might say, well, that's just China exporting deflation. Okay, export prices okay, mm -hmm. are down 12. <laughs> so, so it's one or the other. It, well, no, it's it interesting. Be, but, it's, but I think what I'm saying is that, like, Global growth is pretty weak. That's right. And a lot of that's China. So in other words, China is basically a big deflationary force on the world, whether it's commodities or really everything. And because we interact, we still do a lot of business with China. We, we're not totally cut off yet. And so this is, I think, the biggest kryptonite for stocks is always deflation. Deflation is way worse than inflation. Mm -hmm. Stocks are inflationary beneficiaries. We saw that the last three years. So now if the market starts to think of that, oh my goodness, we actually have deflation, that's when the multiple gets smoked. Whacked. There's always this, I hear this, I think it's a lazy thing. I don't do the research to be able to combat it, but cash on the sidelines, cash on the sides, cash on the sidelines. Does that hold any water? Because I've been hearing this since I started doing the show 17 or so years ago. I don't think with the bull bear readings that we're seeing and with the overextension of the consumer at this point, I don't think there's a lot more cash on the sideline. And People want to go after short sellers, and but they're buyers of stocks, right? So the more that short interest goes down, the more you're losing an, an important leg in the stool on a bullish thesis. That's I've always said that. If I'm bullish and there's shorts out there, there's not a better combination on individual names, I should say. Yeah. So I don't think there's much. Cash levels are high, okay? But remember, the rate you're getting 5% on that. Case. It's just a totally different world than we've seen for the last 15 years. There is an alternative, and it's pretty darn good. 5.5% T-bill is not bad. I think a lot of people have cash. Not a bad asset. Remember, they reduced their bond holdings because bonds, people didn't want to hold bonds because of inflation. If you combine the bonds with the cash, it's not any higher. That's right. They're just deciding to hone short duration. My last question is, and we've talked about this before, passive investing is, is a huge component of what's going on. Money just flows into the market, regardless of all the things we've spent the last 55 minutes talking about. My concern has always been, and I understand what's going on, passive will become active, but it's not going to be active on the way up. When it becomes active, it's going to be for all the things we've been talking about, negative things. Is there something to that? Uh, it's basically the same way as saying escalator up, elevator right. down. Right. That's exactly right. I like 
shocks. It does loosen things up and it creates opportunity. I mean, we get the Perma Bear title. We can fight over who who gets the title here, but like how we win. But we're very You remember you and Bullish in October, so you're not you don't win that. I'm title. actually I'm actually really pretty aggressive on the like when value's there, I'm yeah. the first guy to jump in typically and I and people are like very scared. I'm usually early to sell because I'm not a momentum type investor for better or for worse. But I tell you what, when value appears, man, I'm happy to jump on the grenade probably before mm-hmm. other people. But most people aren't. And that's why you get that elevator down. Most people, when there's something happens that's surprising or scary, they become active, as you say, correct? As I started at the beginning of the show, it's Danny's birthday, Mike. So you have to indulge him for a second because he's all exercised about a couple different things. And yeah. I know, I mean, no, the, the Carvana thing has your head exploding. Well, there no, are a couple things. So just as a birthday present, yeah, go ahead. Stock what's goes from three seventy to three dollars, okay. and so, yeah, no, I get what's it. What's on your? I mean, there are other about things. About Carvana, I was just well. going to take us out with the White Snake song on oh, our please. way out here. But Carvana, I'll just say, you know, people like, oh, it's they still have problems. By the way, if you think that inflation is gone and used car prices are going to come down, I'm just curious how that helps them in general. But yes, the Garcias, Garcia two and Garcia three are being forced basically to buy stock back. Let's keep in mind, they sold billions of stocks yeah. in 2020 and 21. Here, we were on Fast Money the other night, and Mel said. Hey, Dan, any thoughts on Carvana? It looks like they moved up their earnings announcement. I'm like, that must mean they're about to do an equity offering because why else would you do that? That's the kind of stuff I open with and that I'll close with. But if you're buying Carvana here on the equity, you're doing it wrong. Go buy the debt, by the way. And good for them. They pushed off. Extend and pretend is all they've done. Before we get out of here, we got to tease what we're doing on Monday. What are we doing on Mondays? Monday at noon, we go up to Sirius XMSR, or that's what they used to be called. It's actually one of the first meme stocks. You guys remember that, Mike? About 20 years ago, oh, yeah. S- Sirius XM. Yes. All right, so Guy and I are doing market call at noon live. We mm-hmm. take your calls. What can they call in? 844-942-7866, Dan. That's 844-942-7866. We're having call fun. In. We're having fun. Doing Danny that, came right? on. He yelled at me. I know he did. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Get your calendars. Get your serious calendars. <laughs> we got to thank Mike Wilson for joining us. This will be the second time this year. Hopefully, we'll see him a couple we more will. times. Of course, we will. Year. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. Thank Appreciate you, Mike. See you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.